Uh, this is a subject, a topic that everyone has been looking forward to, as you can see by the attendance this afternoon, and it's so significant uh, that we have asked the director of the Harry Ransom Center, Steve Ennis, to say a few words of introduction to Aaron Pratt. Happy to. Um, Aaron Pratt is the Carl and Lily Fortzheimer curator of early books and manuscripts here at the Ransom Center. He did his um, graduate work at Yale University and had a teaching appointment at Trinity University before uh, coming to us about three years ago. Uh, in his role here as Fortzheimer curator, he obviously has responsibility for the Fortzheimer collection of, of early English literature. But beyond that, uh, responsibility as well for our early uh, book and manuscript holdings pre-1700 generally. That's right. Um, he's, uh, in, in the time that he's been here, as some of you know firsthand, he's really transformed um, our teaching initiatives, are focused on our early books and uh, manuscripts. He's also uh, brought renewed uh, research interest and scholarly activity uh, to these collections, which I'm personally very gratified by. He uh, has, has put these collections, uh, which are vast here at the center, uh, at the center of a number of scholarly conversations. And most recently, uh, if you'd like to see some of his, his current work, you can take a look at the exhibition in Stories to Tell downstairs in our gallery space where he has a display of books illustrating early English drama, which I gather will relate in some way, maybe, sure, to, sure. to today's, yeah. uh, today's talk. So, Aaron Pratt. Cool. Okay. okay, is the mic everything? We're good? All right, cool. Um, well, first, thanks, thanks, Steve. Thanks, Roger. Um, and thanks, all of you, for coming to hear me yammer for a little while on a Friday afternoon when we're ready for the week to be over, I suspect. So um, as you've heard, my official title here is Carl and Lily Forsheimer, Curator of Early Books and Manuscripts. And aside from, as you'll see, having such an obviously winning personality, I suspect that one of the main reasons that I seemed a reasonable candidate for this position is that my research has for a longish time now been at the intersection of book history, its more technical sibling bibliography, and literary history, um, really the strengths of the materials in the Forsheimer collection and really the collections more broadly here at the Ransom Center. Unlike many literature scholars, I tend to be a little less interested in offering new readings of specific literary texts than in the broader task of understanding literature's social role. Who read imaginative literature? What goals did it serve for those people who read it? Um, what exactly is capital L literature in the first place? Um, like all of the categories that we use to navigate the world, literature is a construct, something we humans have come up with. It has its own history, or histories plural, and it's up to people like me and many in this room um, to tell those stories. In recent decades, um, one increasingly common way to get at the history of literature has been to study the book trade in the actual books that survive from earlier periods, the physical objects and not just the text that they transmit to us, for evidence of just how and when they were created, read, and preserved. Um, this is my approach, but I want to suggest here that in the case of early modern English drama and early modern English literature more generally, book history, or should I say uncareful book history, is in part to blame for the stickiness of a narrative that sees 16th and early 17th century drama 
as essentially a kind of subliterary entertainment when it first found its ways into the hands of English readers, only rising in status as literature as particular authors of plays themselves rose. That is, even in the work of somebody like Lucas Earn, who has perhaps most influentially revised a once prevailing sense that printed playbooks were essentially ephemera associated with the world of the stage, there are assumptions about early playbooks that remain unchecked and as a result keep even revisionist literary histories from fully integrating English language plays into the category of English literature as it was being negotiated in the 16th and 17th centuries. Okay, so I'm speaking to a really mixed audience here. Um, some people in the room who have probably never thought about early editions of English plays at all, um, and then people like Doug Brewster and others in the room who've done quite a bit of time in the weeds thinking about these questions. And so I'm gonna try my best to pitch down the center of the plate so everybody can engage. Um, and my way of doing this is to structure this presentation around a series of four maxims. Um, I'm afraid I'm not gonna completely answer the question that I've got up on the slide here. Roger's a big fan of general titles that allow people to think, to allow people to attach to esoteric topics. Um, but who could really answer this question? Readers were of course individual people that had different goals and approaches. Things were very idiosyncratic sometimes. But I hope to at least begin to suggest that playbooks in early modern England occupied a very different place in the world of literature then than play scripts and playbooks tend to do today. Okay, Let's see if I can get this to work. Part one, old books are not easier to read than old texts. If you go to one of the special collections libraries that are lucky enough to hold an early edition of a playbook by Shakespeare, by early, let's say, around before 1660 or so, you're probably going to encounter a book that looks something like this. Uh, this is the binding of a 1615 edition of Shakespeare's Richard II that's here at the Ransom Center. Um, if you saw my Stories to Tell exhibition, Collated Imperfect, or read the accompanying exhibition essay volume, you'll know that I have a lot to say about these kind of volumes. Um, for our purposes today, what's important about the playbook here is that the playbook um, in 1615, when it was originally published, would have looked about as far from this book as is conceivable. Um, as it stands today, this little volume reflects the conventions of a late 19th and early 20th century media landscape and its concerns about signaling prestige and status with these fancy bindings. Um, here, on the other hand, um, is a 17th century playbook that has made its way to us in almost exactly the same form in which it was first sold to an English book buyer. Uh, this little guy, the sixth standalone edition of Shakespeare's popular play, Richard II, um, published in 1634, so it's a slightly later edition than the first book, um, is here at the Ransom Center. And to the best of my knowledge, it is the only Shakespeare Cordo um, that survives in the form in which it and other standalone playbooks usually circulated. This is the only one that has made it this way. There's a slightly complicated case of the Folger, but we'll skip it. It's a stab-stitched book where the sheets of paper have just been folded, stuck together, and stabbed through with a needle or an awl, and then stitched up, stab-stitched. Um, I don't like the term, but these are often described as pamphlets, and you'll sort of see why I don't like the term pamphlet. So when compared to that earlier edition of Richard II in its deluxe modern collector's binding, quarto playbooks, this kind of playbook, this kind of playbook al natural, indeed tend to come off as pretty crummy. Or to be nicer about it, because I happen to really like the way something like this looks, they at least come off as humble. Um, here's a first folio in a contemporary binding. So this is the collected work, the collected plays of Shakespeare as published in 1623 that brought 36 of his plays together for the first time. We did, this is not our copy, this is at the Bodleian. 
Um, time hasn't been particularly kind to this binding, but if you had the book in front of you, you could see that it has always been quite plain, with only a border of two lines or fillets pressed into the leather just in from the cover's edge. As sold, most copies of the first folio would have looked basically like this, fairly unadorned but reasonably sturdy. Um, now here is that same guy next to our Richard II, pretty close to scale. I didn't have the books in front of me, so I had to do some math on a napkin. Um, if we take the first folio as our control, as the material standard against which we evaluate the quartos, these little guys, then we may likely indeed be inclined to assume that there's something about the single-issue playbook there that made it unworthy of a, 30, a sturdier structure. Book historians have tended to judge quarto playbooks by their covers, or, or really their lack of covers. Um, so my mom has a large collection of Harlequin romance novels, and, and few, if any, of those books will ever be issued in a hardback edition, right? They are native paperbacks. Um, and of course, all of you who are very literate types have having experience with the kind of books that get written up by the New York Review of Books or the LA Review of Books or the New Yorker. We all know that any novel that gets designated as properly literary first comes out as a cloth hardcover with a dust jacket, right? That's the first step, and then you can go paperback. But you have to have, there's a sense that the hardback is the way that you vet um, the modern kind of literary work. Hardcovers aren't guaranteed to be literary, of course. But again, anything in the mainstream literary market has been sure to have issued in that format. So a work of literature may ultimately sell well enough to be transformed into a mass market paperback, but it'll have accrued its initial authority through the hardcover issue. Whatever their merits, it is clear from the physical format of Harlequin novels in any kind of like horror, fantasy, sci-fi, genre literature, that they hold a lesser status within our modern literary field, and that this issue in mass market paperback initially is a bit of a signal to the place that these books occupy in our modern literary landscape. The question with early modern drama is whether the situation is a parallel one, one where we can assume the low status of the Cordo playbook on the basis of the larger folios, or at least on the basis of books that always circulated in bound copies, books like the first folio, or something like Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen, which was published as a thicker quarto than this and always bound. The field of book history that I consider myself a part of has gained its critical momentum on the strength of its central insight that material form affects meaning. But the case of early modern playbooks should remind us that not all bibliographical features mean in the same way, and that their meaning is almost always relative, contingent upon book trade norms and consumer expectations. For decades now, the stab-stitched quarto form of individual-issued playbooks has been used to support a literary history that was developed within the critical tradition that I've been describing, a critical tradition that formed with its focus on the first folio. And it is a critical tradition that was to a significant extent developed within a modern print regime, one where the hierarchy of bibliographical forms was very much like the one we have today, the one where hardbound books are the literary standard. When book history was on the rise in the 1980s as a way to think about the roles physical books played in, in history and culture, it became especially common to point to the stab-stitched quarto form in which early playbooks were sold as a clear sign that readers in early modern England didn't take them very seriously. 
But if the stab stitch form in fact looked shabby to Shakespeare's contemporaries, and if English drama was indeed marked off as subliterary because it was circulating in this form, we would expect to see drama getting stitched up in this form rather more than other types of books of the same length and format. That is to say, if if the drama is the drama would need to be specifically linked to this format in order for it to signify in the way that we've claimed it does. So this is the sort of thing I do. I can tell you with full confidence that having looked at over 2,500 individual books from this period, um, ranging from all early modern genres, I can say with confidence that stab stitching this format correlates with nothing other than thickness, the number of leaves in the book. And this tells us that the rationale for the practice was purely economic and material. If you could get the book together for cheap, then that's not bad, and so people chose that. Virtually all short books were sold in the same way, stab-stitched, making the material form of a playbook fundamentally the same as the material form of unambiguously high literature, like Edmund Spencer's The Shepherd's Calendar, or Philip Sidney's sonnet sequence Astrophil and Stella, or a heavily illustrated book on swimming, or a philosophical treatise in Latin with illustrations diagramming the anatomy of the eye. All of these things circulated in stab-stitch formats. The most immediate conclusion this evidence demand, then, is what has for decades been a critical commonplace, stab-stitching equals cultural riffraff, was based on modern critics being essentially media illiterate, insufficiently attuned to the conventions at play in early modern England's media ecosystem. And this lack of awareness, I, I want to say, may actually have something to do with the fact that critics of early modern li literary history have, really from about the advent of the modern English department, roughly divided into people who study drama and people who study the other stuff, poetry and prose fiction. So in a very real way, the Shakespearean exceptionalism that's responsible for drama's institutional compartmentalization in English and other modern language departments is also at least, in at least in part responsible for the idea that most early modern readers didn't take his place seriously at literature. Um, because Shakespeareans have tended not to look outside the field of early English drama when assessing playbooks, they have often relied on the folio as their interpretive lens. Stabstitch quarto books, though, were the norm. It is them that we should be using to think about the folios, not the other way around. And I think this is an important point. In the context of a book that I'm trying to get finished, which is why I'm talking to you today, because I need to get this thing done, my revisionist treatment of stab stitching serves as something of a reset button. If the pamphletness of playbooks has served in a kind of circular way to anchor the claim that playbooks were subliterary in histories of early modern England's literature, now we have an opportunity, or I would say an imperative, to reconsider the whole story that we've told about the earliest play quartos. Once we lose the pillar of the material form anchoring the claim about its drama's sort of secondary status in the, in the market for literature, once that's gone, we have an opportunity to rethink it from the beginning. Okay, number two. Price on its own does not tell us anything about readership. That is to say, how much a book cost cannot on its own tell us anything about who read a given book or type of book. Or even who an author or a publisher intended to read a given book or type of book. I'm thinking about this right now because when it comes to the question of early readers' interest or lack of interest in the authors of playbooks assigned, um, I've long had a sense that a lingering tendency to treat standalone playbooks as cheap has, along with the stab stitch form that I was just talking about, been part of why we've had a hard time seeing quarto playbooks as books that can meaningfully participate in either the canonization of drama as a literary form or the transformation of writers of drama into capital A authors. That is part of why it's been easy for even the very best book historians to categorize play quarters as theatrical editions rather than something that might participate in a firmer literary marketplace. Um, 
friend and UPenn professor Zach Lesser wrote a chapter on playbooks that I really quite like in a book called The Oxford History of Popular Print Culture's Volume on Cheap Print in Britain in Ireland to 1660. Very academic title. Um, but what justification... But what justification did the editor of this book on cheap print have for including a, a chapter on playbooks at all? That is, why is it the playbook is deemed cheap print as opposed to something else? If we go way back, way back, that's, I feel old now. If we go back to Tessa, Tessa Watts' landmark book from the early 90s, Cheap Print and Popular Piety, playbooks at their average length of about 38 leaves and their average price of about six pence certainly didn't fall within her limits. When she's talking about truly cheap books accessible to a quote-unquote popular audience, she mostly has in mind books only about a third of the length of an average playbook, that about a third of the price. As economic, now, as any economic historians in the room will know, it's very difficult to compare prices in the past to those in the present, but we have pretty good figures for UK prices and over time. And so the greatest website of all time, measuringworth.com, at which I spend a lot of my time, has a pretty good calculator. And so in 2018, the date of his most recent figures, the six pence that, that like stab stitch quarto would have cost when it first sold in 1634, that, would have, that book would have had a labor value of just over 78 pounds and an income value of about 144 pounds. So we can split the difference and get about 100 pounds. In the labor value figure, that's a figure that tells us how much money of the average wage in 2018 it would take to buy a playbook. So it's calculating uh, um, inflation on the basis of wage inflation. And then the income is the same thing, but it's saying of the average income in like you know, 1634, how much was six pence of that? And then it's doing that math and say, well, how much of the average income in 2018 does that, does that match up with? And so playbooks, it turns out, even these sort of shabby looking guys that are in their stab stitch format, it turns out that these are luxury commodities. I mean, I should say that even the two pence cheapy books, um, even those are pretty pretty expensive. But playbooks at three times the length of a book that Tessa Watt would call a cheap book um, were really a significant expense. Reading material for somebody with a truly disposable income in the leisure time that usually came with that disposable income. So here's like a book from my personal collection, Crystal Glass for Christian Women. This is a cheap book. This is a three-sheet book, half the length of an average playbook. Um, Sure, then, six pence for a quarto may not have been the one pound for a simply bound first folio like the one I showed you. And for those who are not experts in pre-decimal shilling and pre-decimal sterling math, um, one pound is about is 40 times six pence. So the first folio is about 40 times the price of an individual playbook. But given the high floor for buying a quarto, which I just described with those in those um, appreciation numbers, the person who could buy a new play quarto was probably in the majority of cases the same person who could buy the folio. That is to say, the floor is high enough that the person who's able to spend any money at that level could buy both of them. And we see a good, evidence, good evidence of this in surviving account books and inventories of early libraries. Um, and to the best of my knowledge, we have zero evidence of low-income ownership of early playbooks. Now, of course, it's true that we know less about commodity consumption in general by those from lower-income brackets. But while absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, the lack of evidence combined with the basics of price that I've just described suggests that cheap quartos were actually the stuff of elite culture and those from maybe a little further down the ladder who aspired to participate in that elite culture. So we do see aspirational buying in early modern Europe like we do now. People would buy above their station. But at the price of basically the equivalent of 100 bucks of your salary to buy one of these early playbooks, that's quite something. And so I think then um, playbooks were cheaper, but they're not cheap. 
And when we think about historical price, we of course have to think comparatively what did x cost relative to y. But I, I'm suggesting here that we have to be thoughtful about the controls that we use. Um, again, cheaper is not cheap. Okay. The, way, the ways we categorize books may not have been the ways that they did. Abel Jeffies brought out the first edition of the play Edward I in 1593. This copy's seen better days. The title page names neither author nor playing company, and there's no prefatory material in the playbook that follows it. Indeed, um, this particular edition lacks all of the things, what we call paratext, all of the stuff that surrounds the text that scholars have routinely looked to in efforts to identify particular playbooks as more literary than other ones. Um, but in their absence, Abel Jeffies, the publisher, instead advertises the book by its narrative content. So the title page says, the story is about Edward Longshakes returning from the Holy Land, the life of a rebel in Wales, and the sinking of Queen Eleanor. So it's got plot stuff. But this isn't the whole story. Um, the playbook, it turns out, does in fact name its author George Peel, and it also tells readers of Peel's Oxford credentials, so uh, it doesn't work too well. At the very bottom, um, it, does name, Jeff, it names Peel here. But the way that it names the author here doesn't typically enter into discussions of printed drama. Um, the authorship attribution here comes in the form of a bit of text at the very end of the play and at the end of the playbook as a whole, not on the title page, um, with the character Gloucester's exit and Mortimer left on stage holding the head of Joan, Peel signs off, yours, by George Peel, Master of Arts in Oxford. The text here is set off to the right below Gloucester's exit in a position that mimics the subscription of a manuscript letter. So here's a 16th century manuscript letter by your friend um, E. Northampton. It is only after Peel's signature that the playbook ends with Finnis, the, 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 the language used for the end. When issued by William White in 1599, again, the second edition of this playbook retains the explicit and the title page still doesn't name Peel as its author. So Peel's sign-off, this one that we saw back here, Peel's sign-off works to frame the dialogic world of the play, you know, one populated by individual, individuated characters with distinctive personalities, as a continuous message from a single author. It emphasizes that one agent, Peel, is responsible for each and all of the characters, and in doing so, it transforms them into the words of a single communicative act, components of a document meant for a reader, right? Yours, Yours, Elizabeth, that's, that's something that comes with a letter. That's not something that comes with a performance, right? You don't say, yours, Aaron Pratt, I'm done with this talk. Um, so, so because of that, or to put it maybe differently, um, by mimicking the form of a manuscript letter, the end of this printed playbook closes by drawing attention to the body or the hand of a writer, not the bodies of actors. Um, according to the playbook, Peel had offered his play as an intimate missive, one that Jeffies has made available to an interested print audience as its publisher. So because of the explicit, um, because of the explicit, the two 16th century editions of Edward I end not with a tragic denouement of a play, they instead end with an assertion of authorship, one buttressed by another kind of authority, Peel's advanced degree from Oxford. And although Peel's play cum letter proclaims no addressee, the yours at the end might be understood as gesturing, even if obliquely and a bit disingenuously, toward a pedigree of coterie circulation, a kind of network of letters. So here we see a playtext that's performing a kind of exclusivity. Edward I may be the only playbook from the period that fully mimics the sign-off of a letter and it's explicit, but it's only one among many that works similarly to collapse the dialogue that drives the playtext into a single voice, the voice of an originating author. Playbooks containing the drama of John Bale, my favorite, 
historical personality, were the first to record authorship in an explicit. Each of his published plays concludes with a declaration that it was compiled by Johann Bale. Beginning in the 1550s, we see the idea of an authorial voice literalized in a formula that publishers used with a handful of authors. Um, Abraham Veal's edition of Lusty Juvenis, great play, published in or around 1551, ends the playbook with Finnis, and then after that, on the same line, it says, quote, R. Weaver. The two editions of that play, of the play that date from the mid-1560s, about 10 years later, retain the explicit. Um, here's one of them in the Ransom, whoops, here's one of them in the Ransom Center's collection. Um, you can see the explicit there. So it says, Finnis, quote, R. Weaver, right above the colophon at the end there. Um, so too, or rather, in 1567, John Pickering's The Interlude of Vice, also known as Orestes, then compresses the formula. And so all it says is, Finnis, Q, I, P, quote, John Pickering. And so too, um, just to give another example that we have here, um, so too does Opian Fulwell, good name, Opian Fulwell's playbook from 1568, Like Will to Like. It also abbreviates quote to Q, um, or kind of QD, um, and it says Opian Fulwell there. And this copies of the Folger. And a number of other Tudor playbooks, mid-16th century playbooks, do the same thing. Um, as the verb form quote would suggest, explicits that attribute authorship in this way appear to be a carryover from a Middle English tradition, a medieval tradition. Like quoth, which may remain familiar to modern readers only because of the raven, Edgar Allan Poe's poem, quod is the past tense form of quaven, the verb used to signal direct discourse. So it's like spoken, opian fullwell. In playbooks where the quote formula and its variants occur, the explicits ask us to understand the playtext as one long speech. The effect in each instance is to identify the entirety of the play as one utterance by one person. The lines of each character may be theirs in the narrative world that the play creates. Each character says their own lines. But they belong ultimately to the author in books like this, um, a voice from outside the, the world, the fictional world of the play, that is responsible for speaking all of the voices in it. So when publishers made the decision to emphasize authorship in the way that I've been describing, they tapped into their own interest in authorial control and projected it onto the demographic they hoped to project, which is to say, when they were doing this, they were responding to other people caring about authors. Um, this, these stationers used the ends of their playbooks to remind readers that, despite the dialogic nature of drama, the playtexts they reproduced were like most other documents. They were both initiated and completed by an author. This was equally true of interludes, entertainments, and indeed the plays that began emerging from London's commercial theater industry in the later decades of the 16th century. And yet, it remains common for scholars to write as though playbooks only came to invest in the category of dramatic authorship in the 17th century, or, or perhaps at the very end of the 16th. And the reason for this is that critics have tended to invest their energy in playbooks performed by London's commercial troops, the kind, of course, that Shakespeare worked for and wrote for. But central to the work that I have been doing is, is, a con is the contention that a properly historical understanding of drama must attend to the printed playbook as an older category that exerted a cultural force of its own, often independently of the commercial theaters of the globe and other places that many of us are familiar. Those are the places, of course, that ultimately came to provide the market with most of the playtext that circulated. But playbooks existed prior to that industry, or at least alongside its creation. Um, as I wrote before at one point, it's important to remember, quote, that for as long, why am I quoting myself, for, as long, for almost as long as printing presses have been in England, there have been printed playbooks. They have been a constant presence in the English book trade as it developed around print. 
So if we choose to lead with plays associated with the commercial theater, famous today because of Shakespeare's involvement, we miss, we miss much of how readers conceptualize and understood drama in the period. And I'm suggesting here that this includes the issue of dramatic authorship. We disaggregate playbooks with origins in London's commercial theater from others like the ones I've been showing you in a way that runs against both how publishers and collectors seem to have understood plays and playbooks as a form and market category that cut across play types and origins, which is to say there's the playbook as a document that people read, and plays come from a range of different sources, you know, ones for the commercial theater, ones for country house poems, entertainments. All of those were understood in the book trade as the market of the playbook that, that can run across these performance pedigrees. So the first major study on authorship attributions in printed playbooks in early modern England was published in the mid-90s. And as the title of that study indicates, the focus there was on documenting the publication of plays from the professional stage, the Shakespeare companies. Because of this, um, to put it simply, I think their analysis misses this earlier market for drama upon which the new professional playbooks depended and observes a misleading pattern in which attributions of author on title pages of plays or in playbooks in general make steady gains from a low point. Um, these authors remain agnostic on the implications of the increasing rate of attribution they find in playbooks. As time goes on, more author names show up on playbooks they find. But it contributes rather straightforwardly to a familiar narrative that would have the rise of authorial attribution signal the emergence of printed drama as a more dignified and literary form, the kind of thing that would ultimately become the thing we study in English departments or theater departments. Um, since that study in 1995, a follow-up study by Alan Farmer and Zach Lesser has expanded beyond the domain of plays written for the commercial theaters and into the market for printed drama more broadly. They qualify that earlier study by observing that while author attributions among professional playbooks rose over time, those from other places um, remained relatively steady. And so here's a crappy graph. It's a great graph. What am I talking about? It's a great graph. Um, but although the title of their study broadens the scope from 1512 to 1660, their interest in charting the relationships between author, theater, and company attributions on the, on, in playbooks, the latter of two of which depend on a visible theater industry, that means that they limit most of their analysis to those years of the commercial theaters from 1576 and moving forward. Um, none of their charts, and here's an, the most important one, I think, none of their charts documenting authorship includes, includes data from the years before the commercial theater. And so you see um, here where the commercial playbooks, there's a kind of blip at the beginning, but then it's very low, and then it, and it moves upward over time. The non-commercial playbooks with the dark black line, they kind of keep on trucking pretty steadily with a bit of blips here and there. Um, if we expand backward from 1576, though, we see the regularity of authorship attributions in the playbook market before commercial plays became a part of it. And I apologize for the lack of a graph here, but in the decades from 1530 to 1560, um, the percentage of playbooks that specified information about their authors hovered between 50 and 100%. Um, the reason I don't do a, a graph is that um, there are not that many playbooks being published in these earlier years, and so the difference in playbooks per year would generate a very aggressive kind of EKG-looking, a very unhealthy EKG-looking um, graph for us. But really what we see is there's a, basically an average of attribution before the commercial playbook comes out around 64%. And then we see a drop in the, these new playbooks that are coming out from London's theaters. Um, so what we see, actually, is that what... Scholars focused on professional playbooks, the ones associated with Shakespeare's industry. What they see as this kind of steady rise of authorship from a beginning where authorship's not interesting, what instead we get is a, a dip from a relatively high point earlier on, so we're 60, 60%, 60%, and then it drops down when plays start being published from the Shakespeare companies. 
then it kind of rises moving forward. So one of the things I would say here is that the overall percentage of non-commercial playbooks published before 1624 with author attributions of some kind on title pages or within is around 70%. Um, and so although named authors do not appear to have been a necessary condition of readers' interest in printed plays during the 16th century, or really indeed most of the 17th century, this information, when we look further back, suggests that readers had always wanted to know about authors of plays if they could find information about them. And even when it came to playbooks from the new theater industry, it's only if we assume that plays written for the commercial stage generated a completely new type of playbook, one designed for an essentially new book market, that we can see attribution is a new phenomenon that takes off at the end of the 1590s and in the early 17th century when Shakespeare is active. If we table the assumption that low attribution rates here in that dotted line, um, the low attribution rates in addition of early so-called commercial plays was a function of low interest in dramatic authorship and instead see these additions within a larger market for drama that saw authorship as a desirable feature, though by no means a necessary one. What then can account for the relatively low rate of attributions among commercial playbooks in the last decades of the 16th century? Um, if we are to understand that stationers, publishers, had long seen authorship as something worth emphasizing on playbooks, why didn't they do so more often in the years when Shakespeare's industry is really kind of in its biggest growth spurt, we might say? Okay, last but not least here. Author attributions, like entitled plays or books, could be and sometimes were limited by supply rather than by demand. So I'm trying to explain from that last graph why we have a dip in attribution in, the, in that period in the 1580s and 90s. Um, one clear sign that an author was involved in the publication of a play is the presence of a dedication or other type of prefatory epistle. Um, these aren't the kind of documents that attach to performance, right? They're essentially bookish, occasioned only by publication for readers. Um, we see more of these authorial paratexts, dedications, prefatory epistles in playbooks as the 17th century marches on, with Thomas Walkley famously apologizing for the absence of one in his 1622 first edition of Othello. To set forth a book without an epistle were like the old English proverb, a blue coat without a badge. That is, not having an epistle from an author is like a servant in his uniform, not wearing a badge identifying his master. Nice class politics for you. Um, Walkley here is overstating the presence of dedicatory material in playbooks, but author-contributed material had indeed come, become more common by 1622. And if we have a paratext, one of these things that's clearly authorial, I think it's fair to say that the author, um, if the author's still alive, was involved in some way of providing, and this is by the publisher, not the author, but if there's a paratext that's clearly authorial, I think it's fair to say that the author provided the manuscript of the play to the publisher as well, and we can navigate this through some examples. In the preface to Parasitaster, one of my favorite plays, published in 1606, John Marston indicates this clearly, I have been my own setter out. Yep. Um, in the Golden Age, published in 1611, Thomas Haywood writes, this play coming accidentally to the press, I was loath, finding it my own, to see it thrust naked into the world, to abide the fury of all weathers without either title for acknowledgement or the formality of an epistle for ornament. So here, in 1611, Haywood, in one of these, these prefatory materials, tells us that a manuscript of the play made it to its publisher, William Berenger, independently of him. Somehow, Haywood then caught light of this, and the existence of the preface tells us that he proceeded to contact Berenger and arrange for its inclusion. 
Haywood, like so many Londoners, must have had connections within the book trade. And this episode demonstrates as much, even if, um, even if Haywood's fictionalizing it a bit. A few um, years earlier, Haywood, the same playwright, had also provided a preface to the publisher of his previous playbook, or a previous playbook, The Rape of Lucrece. And in that preface, he reveals, quote, that he committed the play to the press himself. Whereas earlier of his plays, he said, had accidentally come into the printer's hands and were corrupt and mangled, The Rape of Lucrece, this playbook, he says, was one that he was willinger to furnish out. And willinger, use that word, it's great. For Haywood, the presence of a preface became an indication both of his authorization to publish and the fact that the manuscript itself is authoritative, provided by him, the author. The special explanation in the epistle from the Golden Age registers a breach of what had become protocol for him. So unless otherwise specified, the presence of an authorial paratext, one of these dedicatory letters to the reader, um, was intended by Haywood to serve as a guarantor for the bona fides of the printed playtext itself. Uh, another of Haywood's playbooks suggests that the even more basic feature of author attribution could be contingent upon an, authorship's, an author's involvement in publication. And this, I want to suggest, is critical for how we understand that attribution dip that I just described. Um, with The English Traveler, published in 1633, our friend Haywood, he's a very, he likes to talk about his plays and prefatory material, Haywood again found himself chasing a play that came to the press accidentally. Having intelligence thereof, he writes, I thought it not fit that it should fast as filius populi, a bastard without a father to acknowledge it. And you can see this kind of language of parentage and patrimony, gross patriarchal stuff. Had he not approached the publisher Robert Rayworth, Rayworth, he tells us, the play would have been issued anonymously. It would have been an orphan without a parent. In fact, this also appears to have been the case with the Golden Age, although the phrasing is a little more obscure in that playbook when Haywood writes that it would not have had a title for acknowledgement. The implication appears to be that the title page would not have stated his authorship, would not have acknowledged his authorial role had he not connected with the publisher. Taken together, these two examples print to a broader fact about the manuscript culture that print market depended on. Manuscripts owned by playing companies, the ones run by Shakespeare and others, the manuscript owned by playing companies need not have circulated with an author's name on them. Indeed, there's no reason they should have, right? And apparently didn't, seeing as how the playbooks by these two publishers came very close to being issued without author attributions. Before Haywood tells us that he began supplying manuscripts to stationers in 1608, the playbooks that we now attribute to him came from other sources, he says. These playbooks, with one possible exception, did not name Haywood as their author. So by my count, 13 manuscripts that were used in the Elizabethan and Jacobean theater companies that were actually marked up for it, so manuscripts that were, we know to have been used by theater companies, 13 of those survive um, from the Elizabethan and Jacobean eras. And only one of them, the earliest, has its author's name on it. And it's in rough shape. And this is a facsimile of a facsimile of this play manuscript. Um, at the very end of John Kent and John Cumber, great play, which dates from sometime before December uh, 1590, Anthony Munday appended his John Hancock. And it's rough looking here, but that's Anthony Munday's signature at the bottom there. Um, on the other 13, Authors' names are nowhere to be found, even on manuscripts by our friend Haywood's The Captives that we believe to be an autograph manuscript that is one written by him. And why would they? Um, these were manuscripts meant for a company's bookkeeper, the guy who needed to put on plays, not for readers interested in authority, reputation, and other kinds of cultural capital that attach to those kinds of things. 
These, of course, are the kind of manuscripts that stationers were usually receiving from the non-authorial agents who enabled the publication of most professional plays. So big surprise, I want to say, that we see low rates of attribution in the 1580s and 1590s. The evidence of attribution when it comes to non-commercial plays suggests both that stationers want publishers wanted names when they could get them, and that they were willing to publish books anonymously when names weren't available. For a while, until authors themselves became more involved in the process, and before particular authors gained reputations that attached their names to printed playbooks even when manuscripts lacked them, attribution rates took a dive. And so what had been seen as a bottom of low attribution that sort of rises as people started to care about drama, it's a blip related to this particular fact about manuscript transmission in the early modern theater industry. Um, what we've attributed to a lack of demand then, lack of interest in drama's authors, appears to have been a problem with supply. And as a result, uh, we've been unable and maybe unwilling to see quarto playbooks for what they were. Books that were about as interested in conveying authority by naming authors as most other kinds of books of English literature, which of course have a long history of anonymity. As we recognize and dump our assumption about what books should look like, what makes a book cheap, what types of plays are important to study, and why playbooks may have been published anonymously, we find ourselves in a bit of a new place, one where our existing rise of narratives, the rise of English drama, the rise of authorship, the elevation of drama as a literary form, they kind of fall away because we've lost many of these pillars um, as we start to recheck our assumptions about what exactly, how it is that we read the physical form of the playbook. We're, not left, we're left not with a bunch of theatrical editions of plays tethered strictly to the world of the London theater and useful only as maybe momentary entertainment but instead as a corpus of reader-oriented books that contributed meaningfully to the leisure lives of England's elite, and in doing so, participated in the country's literary field as it was forming alongside a broader marketplace for luxury commodities in the 16th and 17th centuries. Thank you. <laughs>